Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in South Asia, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Sneha Navarapu, and I'm a host of this channel. And today I'm in conversation with Dr. Rajesh Veeraraghavan, author of the new book, Patching Development, Information Politics and Social Change in India. Rajesh Veeraraghavan is an assistant professor of science, technology and international affairs at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service, Patching Development was published by Oxford University Press in 2021, and it is his first monograph. Hi, Rajesh. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Congratulations on this wonderful book, Patching Development, Information Politics and Social Change in India. I really enjoyed reading it, and I'm sure it's already, you know, it's such a useful book to teach with, and I'm sure it's already populating a lot of syllabi. Um, And uh, yeah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Sneha. It was it's nice to be here. Yeah, so I thought we could start the conversation with you telling us a little bit about yourself. How did you become an academic and what other worlds did you inhabit before coming to academia? You know, I'm glad you didn't ask why you became an academic, but how? <laughs> so, so I, yeah, no, I, uh, so, uh, I mean, I did have a career, a software career uh, before coming uh, to academia. So I was a software developer. I wouldn't call myself a computer scientist, just a software developer writing code for a living. Um, and at, at a large company, Microsoft, and, you know, making a lot of uh, rich people's problems <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> little bit, little bit more, uh, you know, easier, perhaps, uh, or at least that's what we told ourselves. And, um, you know, while I was uh, you know, doing that, uh, or before even uh, doing that, I was, you know, when I did my master's in computer science, and I started becoming um, active in a nonprofit uh, group, uh, a student group called AID, Association for India's Development. So we, it was basically a bunch of students uh, in many U.S. chapters uh, that uh, start looking at uh, projects, development projects in India, 
you know, have supporting them very, very small amounts of money and meeting, you know, various social activists and, and whatnot. So that was my first kind of, if you will, consciousness, a politicization, if you will, of um, or seeing India differently. And, and uh, you know, I, you know, came from a very, um, you know, from an upper caste uh, and, you know, uh, but uh, a kind of a middle class kind of background. Uh, but, you know, so it was very privileged in many ways. And, you know, the interaction uh, with, the, you know, activists and, and other peer volunteers where we trying to learn in some sense, uh, the problems of this kind of, uh, the world we're building um, and hearing alternatives. And so that kind of was there over time. And I still like ended up following, going to Microsoft and, and doing the thing. And um, and so we, I wanted to go back to India and um, after some point in time, uh, and I, it was completely accidental. I mean, I didn't have anything to do with research or academia. I didn't have anybody in my family doing any of it. And, and I realized that, that, that the cultural capital is kind of important. I see many academics have, have that I didn't have any of that, like, benefits or or, or 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 problems I would say and and so I was kind of clear where I was going uh, but then I think I kind of ended up at this research group Microsoft research because I thought it'd be easier to go back to India in you know very, actually very even more very crassly put it was because they paid for the move to India I thought okay it's be a soft landing you know and uh, turns out that I go to the research group everybody had a PhD and somehow I kind of got in and uh, obviously I thought, uh, and I started enjoying this kind of work. And I, I think my first introduction to research was uh, um, two um, people. Uh, one uh, was Ken Keniston, he's no more, uh, was an MIT at the, um, you know, at the science, started the science technology um, SDS group in MIT and the India initiative at some point. And then Balaji Patsadi, who, who now heads the IIIT group. And so they had a kind of a summer project uh, looking at kiosks. And so I kind of started, uh, I mean, I worked with them and did the two, two and a half month mini field work, um, ethnographic field work, very short, but uh, looking at a kiosk project. And so I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. And I thought I was kind of good at it <laughs> and, and felt comfortable. And I realized, oh, I kind of like this. And, um, and I want, and then I realized I should just get a PhD. And one of my, um, Managers Kintaro was kind of instrumental in planting that seed, along with many other peer friends. And so I went to Berkeley, went to the Information School because that's the only, like I guess, um, from a, being a computer science student and, and econ, this was the closest um, away from <laughs> the technical side. And you know, I was doing this technology for development kind of projects before. And so I think Berkeley. Uh, was a very interesting experience. So that's how I kind of got to academia, um, and 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 you know have had a bunch of um, influences there from sociology and and from the information school. Um, and I, I guess then it's a drug. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, uh, we do get a high out of it, and there are terrible lows <laughs> as well. Um, so this wonderful book tells us such a comprehensive story about the challenges and benefits of using information and technology 
in the implementation of one of the largest development programs in the world, the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act or scheme, NREGA. Um, it so compellingly shows how upper level bureaucrats in the southern Indian state of Andhra Pradesh were trying to fix or, as you say, patch the several issues that emerged in the implementation of uh, NREGA. I really enjoyed the careful, the candid ethnographic observations that, uh, you know, were populated through the book and uh, were so deftly supplemented by an analysis of historical events, legal documents and governmental policies. But before we get into the weeds of the argument uh, that the book is making, could you tell us a little bit about how this book emerged? What is the story of this book and when did you start thinking about it? Yeah, I, as I said, I was uh, in the information school and I was interested in development, uh, broadly defined, and um, I had connections with this group, um, AID, and a bunch of um, NGOs and activists in India. And there was a call out, uh, I think 2010 summer. This is the time when I was, you know, students in the US kind of at that, you know, after some years you started thinking about dissertation and ideas and whatnot. So I, you know, I had some vision of, okay, let me go spend some time with away from courses. And so I kind of volunteered. Uh, I was the most expensive volunteer for them. <laughs> Most of the volunteers are from, from, you know, Delhi and, and I, you know, and, and uh, I remember one of the actors like, come all the way from, <laughs> from the US for volunteering and uh, that that airfare would pay for all the you know concerns of mazurs and stuff uh, but um, you know still I it was kind of um, I spent a summer with this uh, group um, JJSS Jan Jagar Jagran Shakti Shangatan in in Araria and Bihar and um, and it was a social audit uh, of this NREGA program, National Rural Employment Guarantee Act in Bihar. And this is run by this agricultural union. And, you know, I write that write about that in the book as well, uh, in the introduction. And so that was the kind of start of, um, you know, really thinking about uh, what information and what opening up uh, these documents and what public hearings uh, could do uh, in, you know, in, in raising the, of you know possibilities of of marginalized citizens questioning the state right i mean of course bihar at that time was at different kind of uh, 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 political possibility but um, i started thinking about what would it mean um, to study this more in depth and i was kind of thinking about uh, I think Jean Drez and Ritika Kera was significant at the time because they were running the social audits uh, uh, you know, kind of visiting in, in Jharkhand and, and, and uh, uh, other places where a bunch of volunteers, very similar to the JJSS setup, they had a parallel setup. So I remember talking to them and and I think Jean, I may, maybe maybe I'm misquoting him, but my, my, my memory of it was, you know, take take uh, Andhra Pradesh's implementation seriously and because and, initially it was a slightly different kind of conception of what I had wanted to do, uh, Rajasthan and, and Bihar. And, and I think I... Uh, so that's when I kind of really started, at least the earliest kernels, if you will, of the, uh, you know, I wouldn't say the book, but the, the dissertation uh, first, right, that came came about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I actually really loved the introduction and the uh, the the way you brought in that uh, 
scene from Bihar and that he just talked about. And I thought it was such a gripping intro. Like it was easily one of my most memorable intros that I've read to a book. Very, I mean, very fabulously done, I would say. Um, But yeah, to set up some context for the listeners who might be either be unfamiliar with or need a bit of a recap of the NREGA, can I trouble you to tell us about the significance of the radicalness of this Employment Guarantee Act in India and also uh, what made Andhra Pradesh such an ideal site for your study? Yeah, thank you. So in NREGA, it's called the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act. It's also called the MGNREGA, Mahatma Gandhi and uh, National Rural Employment Guarantee Act, and or Narega, um, colloquially and Karu um, Pani in in uh, in Andhra. Um, so there is, uh, you know, so it's a it's a as you said, it's a radical program uh, because it's it's a kind of a departure from government programs or welfare programs where, you know, you would do uh, pass, uh, you know, some kind of a program to do X. And that usually depends really on the government's priorities at the time, uh, and it would go away. Um, you know, and the right, the uh, NREG was different because this is, uh, uh, you know, a rights, you know, as, as the name says, National Rural Employment Guarantee, and it's a guarantee and it's a right to work. Uh, for those of uh, people living, uh, you know, listening to this from the U.S., it's a very different right to work. It's really a literally a actual right uh, for uh, citizens uh, to work, rural citizens particularly, to work uh, on demand. Um, on public works, uh, and so they can actually um, demand, uh, you know, have access to work on public lands, and, and the government has to give them work. Uh, and it's radical because uh, it's uh, that notion, even theoretically, didn't exist before uh, in 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 this form. I mean, it it existed in Maharashtra had a smaller version of it uh, before, but at a national level, um, it it was the first time that the law uh, was passed, and uh, and I can get into how it was passed. Uh, but uh, you, to answer your question about Andhra, you know, I, I think the I had known at the time also, as I mentioned earlier, with John's comments and stuff, that the NRGS. Um, implementation though it's a national program where the money comes from the from the center the implementation is left to the states to implement these programs and so andhra pradesh actually was um, you know was seen as one of the kind of star states uh, of of implementing this program well and i i wanted to kind of try and you know i had this angle of looking at uh, not just in rega because my focus was looking at the role that information and audits and technology can play. And so the uh, so it was kind of natural for me to kind of look at a program that at that time was the only state, um, this is before Telangana was, was born, was the only state that social audits were implemented uh, to the you know, spirit of the law um, rather than just in paper. And so it it really became like the an easy case to pick for me with the kind of lens of looking at a working model of social audits and the possibility of uh, learning from a social movement inspired uh, experiments that happened in Rajasthan with MKSS, uh, 
Mazur Kisan Sakti Shangatan's uh, work and, and the, the JJSS in Bihar I talked a brief, briefly about. And so the idea of how can, you know, you have these one-off audits uh, of, of, you know, having public meetings and, and whatnot to question and open up government records. If it was done by a state government uh, at scale and covering all villages, what would that be? And given that it's been seen as quote-unquote successful, uh, I wanted to kind of understand um, not so much the impact. <laughs> I, was, I was more interested in looking at the kind of you know nitty-gritties of the mechanisms of how does it actually work. Uh, and and so Andhra Pradesh became like a, a, a kind of an easier easy uh, case study to uh, to start uh, you know grounding my work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely, thank you for uh, that context and for you know clarifying the stakes uh, for you for the book. Um, and the book is such a refreshing analytical story of upper-level bureaucrats who really did want to implement this urgent and important welfare scheme on the ground. I appreciated how the book is very snugly organized around a central conceptual contribution called patching, which is a term that you borrow from the software world. And now now that I know, you know how you came to academia, I wonder if it's a term that you borrow from your previous life. <laughs> so what is patching? And what are its central characteristics? And what does uh, the impl- thinking about the implementation of reforms as patching tell us about state-society relations? Yeah, no, I, I just want to back off a little bit about uh, like what this responds to, right? So like I, you know, like you and others, many, many of us kind of read uh, in broadly development uh, texts, ethnographies and, 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 you know, other studies, there's a lot of pessimism about, and rightfully deservingly so, right? Because even Tanya Lee's book, Will to Improve, right? Basically says, you know, hey, I am giving the, there's no, there's no doubt that there's people are well-meaning, but still you find they are, it's an anti-politics machine at the other end and, and they kind of don't get it like the Ferguson's case or even with, even in the Will to Improve, it's a very kind of, you know, there's moments of hope, but in general it's a, and there's, and and I, I think economists also are looking at it and they kind of think about examining the impact of uh, a particular program. Um, and, you know, and the political scientists are looking at like, what does it take uh, for the state to even see the poor, like at Stuart Corbidge would say. Uh, and and so I what I call as first mile kind of concerns are problems, right? Where how do you get the state to kind of pay attention or, or how do you measure the impact? Like, I felt that there's not a lot of, uh, or or if if it ex- if it gets examined, usually these it's are very um, largely negative stories, right? About how these things don't work. And I thought um, th- it'd be useful to kind of think about a case. I wouldn't call success, but I would say uh, not a failure or a positive case, largely. Or uh, where what what would it take to kind of examine these, as you said, the state society relations and what is it? Ch- how is it changing by this program and uh, and what this, um, you know, this would tell us. And so the first big shift was to kind of try and focus on not just the first mile problem, but the what I call it, the last mile implementation, or others have called last mile problem, uh, and looking at the politics of implementation, right? And so, uh, and so that was one motivation to kind of try and think about. Uh, what if if it is that they are trying to fix these things, uh, and if it, it's not just an anti-politics machine, how are these programs implemented on the ground? Right, and so so that's the kind of context in which I 
want, you know, started th thinking about uh, theorizing about what is it that the bureaucrats are doing here. And um, and I and yeah, as you said, patching is. Um, you know, it comes, I mean, I say that in the book, it's a definitely a software metaphor. It refers to, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, on this annoying kind of, uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a computer user now, you get this, oh, you need an update and you, you know, you get a fix, right? And so, so it, is, it is a patch that fixes a system and it's usually, you know, uh, many cases in these, you know, desired at the top, right? And, and so, um, so that's where it comes from, but I, I just want to give a small anecdote to, to kind of understand how how I came to it because I'll give you a sense of uh, my discovery uh, of, of of before I describe what define what patching uh, in the way I define it. So I actually was sitting in in the you know in actually in Hyderabad uh, in uh, the office of a of, of the then principal secretary of rural development, and you know we were. I mean, as, as you know, you and many listeners, anybody who's done any work with, <laughs> and you have done it with police, if, you know, it takes a while to kind of get attention. And so I was sitting there, and uh, you know, maybe a yeah, hour or so, and, and a lot of people were coming and going. And there was this group of software uh, vendors uh, who were, um, you know, discussing with this uh, officer bureaucrat about uh, making. You know some small changes to a, a, a master role or an attendance register, and I was here kind of had like a list of I don't know maybe too many questions to maybe 40 or something I remember like describing what how is it working what they're doing in, in the field what is politics and how do you what, how do you kind of deal with the resistance and uh, this serpent that so all of like lots of different kind of questions because you know barely get a time to talk and I had to kind of pack all of it meanwhile they were discussing uh, and arguing and, and geeking out on like which aspect of a muscle role they want to control they make it read only so that it cannot be updated in the fee field and uh, uh, etc and so i uh, and and how do you store it in the back end and should you use sql or not so i mean i was a software developer as i said and i understood the kind of technical uh, under discussions, but I really didn't understand the sense of what they were talking about. And only later, I would say, that I realized that this is exactly how the they fix problems in the field. I mean, if you talk about politics of implementation, the politics of implementation results in these kind of fixes. And these fixes are not just the what I just told you about technology fixes of or, or fixing a document, but this idea of fixing things based on what people do uh, in the ground uh, is I realized this is this is how the bureaucrats were able to kind of try and control uh, and, and and try and implement this uh, you know uh, and I call it cat and mouse game for in, in a paper I, I wrote about this where it this this constant kind of um, reactions uh, or, or fixes to counter resistance from the ground, right? And whether it's changes in technology, whether it's changes in documents, whether it's changes in how public meetings are organized, uh, is whether it's changes in who should be hired as, uh, as a field uh, uh, assistant at the local level, all of these changes were had to be uh, constantly um, changed and fixed. And, and so, so I created this kind of, so the patching is this idea where, you know, I have three different features, right? So one, it's, it's a top-down process. And again, this is because, you know, this is the, it's, it's uh, in some sense, it's, this, you know, it's 
emanates from empirical work and people I mean, I've been arguing, arguing with others about it should it be top down but in this case it is top down uh, 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 it's a top down fix uh, and it's folk and it's um, incremental in the sense it's uh, these fixes are very very tiny uh, they're you know they're talking about which fields are read only whether can you you know whether people should wear a a shirt or not uh, i mean a, a certain kind of shirt or not uh, should they be allowed to eat meat or not um, uh, and where should the meeting happen should it be happen in this particular habitation or that habitation uh, and 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 so very very small details right uh, small p politics in some sense and and the third is iterative meaning it is not just a one time biometric device they created or whether they created a particular uh, institutional arrangement where only women are employed and and you know as if you know so it's, uh, that would fix it right so this is incremental meaning they'll try and change they'll try and for example to give you one example like let's say you want to create that the meeting should happen at 5 p.m well it's not like 5 p.m is done for all all meetings they realize that oh once you have 5 meeting 5 p.m they'll realize the meetings won't people don't show up or maybe they will realize that if you actually read out in these meetings of findings uh, about what happened in the uh, program, uh, the people who are coming to these audits are all uh, not workers. And so the whole idea of actually open meetings uh, do not quite work in practice. And so they would try and stop reading out these uh, meetings, right? So in, in that sense, it's it's iterative. So it's top down. It's incre- you know, it's it's very very granular, small fixes. And then third, it's iterative, meaning it re- uh, reacts to uh, reactions. So one big thing uh, that patching tries to do is that it's not though it's uh, uh, sounds technical, right? Last mile is a telecommunication metaphor, but it's a very socio-political technical idea right it's very uh, political in the sense that uh, these are reactions or attempts to deal with resistance on the ground so it's a it's kind of the the opposite if you will of of, of scottian kind of vision of how the states uh, render citizens legible and you have metis which is you know people at the local level so here there are attempts and of course we're not denying like local knowledge exists and, and beyond this kind of uh, uh, attempt. But I just want to defend the idea of patching as a, uh, or, or declare it as, as not a technical idea, but it's a very political uh, manifestation of attempting to try and deal with power at the local level. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's uh, really, really helpful to anchor the rest of the conversation about your book. Um, and so an important topic that you tackle in the book is uh, and is uh, and you just like we talked about it briefly is how digital technology has come to occupy a central role in how NREGA is governed in AP, and you show you show so much evidence to drive home the point that the deployment of the technology was in many ways intended to reduce or even eliminate interference by both lower level bureaucrats and politicians and local elites, right? And yet, digital governance does not quite eliminate these interferences, something that you find through your fieldwork. In fact, you argue that technology itself creates certain unanticipated outcomes in governance. Could you give us some examples from your fieldwork uh, that illustrate your point around uh, digital governance being inherently unstable and open to conflicts uh, conflicts within the state? Yeah, no, I think that, so the, again, this is to, just to, uh, for people who are not following this, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's two camps, right? Uh, 
uh, one is believes that there's a very techno-deterministic view that you know you you're just waiting around for the next tech, right? Whether it's Aadhaar or whether it's the body body cameras in the U.S. police body cameras or whatnot. So essentially, some kind of gadget, some kind of fix, some technological kind of cons- contraption that that you can design it and uh, and then you can you can deal with problems. And the other uh, hand, there are people who are very skeptical, rightfully so, but they're very skeptical where they're saying, well, you know, you just can't think of technology. There's no point. And let's, let's, let's talk about politics without technology. And I'm arguing, you know, that there is a, uh, at least in this case, there's a ground where um, you could conceive of technical interventions very politically, right? And so what that what does that mean to give a concrete example? Like take the example that I kind of alluded to uh, of attendance, right? So Enrega is about, it has two goals. One is to get people to work on public lands, that is imp- giving employment and pay them, right? Um, paying them on time and build useful assets, right? And so in that sense, it's a, in some sense, um, you know, I, I, uh, Sometimes I wonder why is it that hard? <laughs> We're trying to kind of do this at scale, uh, uh, but it's a very simple idea of uh, letting. Uh, uh, you know, Jenkins uh, at some point says, you know, Enrega is, is is you know is radical, but it's also very modest in in its in its operation. But yes, yeah, why is it hard? It's because the implementation is very unequal system, right? So so going back to technology, right? So the attendance register, which is an important aspect of making sure people are getting paid. Meaning these are, how do you, if you want to pay people, you have to write down like who worked on what land uh, and what time and how many hours and what they, um, and so this master role is this, um, I would say, I mean, I would say it's a colonial invention in some sense about of having tracking these things and people have raised questions about, about that. But in practice, though, it is it is it is it is an important document because that's how people get paid, and uh, all it has is um, a list of names and there's thumb impressions and um, and that and it gets the P order gets generated. So as you can imagine, one of the uh, uh, sources of concern and 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 avenues of of corruption, if you will, is these records are usually never seen anywhere else outside the local um, office, right? Nobody's ever seen them uh, in the, the actual actuality of those records. And so one of the things that, uh, you know, again, this is many experience before it, but Andra said, oh, let's digitize these records, right? Uh, and the first uh, attempt was to, um, the hope is that once you digitize records, you know, Scott's idea of legibility, right? So you can actually see these records uh, from uh, bureaucrats sitting, you know, at the district level uh, and, and and beyond. Uh, and so the idea is that if you actually have more visibility, that would put some pressure on 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 people. Um, but you, you know, part of you, when I'm saying this, and 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 listeners, particularly you read the book, but listeners could say, imagine, well, you know, digitization doesn't really kind of solve these problems because you could. You know, you could still like. How do you know what's happening on the ground? You instead of having paper form, you just change the materiality of it. Now it's in a digital form, right? Uh, so the bureaucrats uh, kind of were not techno determinists. So they were aware that this is not, um, you know, this is not enough, right? And so one of the first things they did was, well, let's increase the speed in which the uh, these records digitization happens, right? Meaning it's not at the computer center. 
uh, that you know that you do it after the fact. But what if the data becomes digital at birth? Meaning you can you capture it using a mobile phone and ask people to enter it at the work site uh, right there, and then the the report can be sent. Um, it adds one more layer of uh, uh, you know checks. Right now you can you just have to do you know if you want to be fixing this or if you want to be corrupt, you have to plan ahead um, and fake these uh, records. I mean, one big thing I forgot to mention is the, you know, the obvious thing of exaggerating claims or, or fudging these records. Uh, and that's one big central way people make money uh, out of this. Uh, at least that's what they were worried about. And so the mobile phone f changes, uh, what it does is it reduces the collusion possibilities, right? Because you have to now do that in the work site, you're alone as a field assistant capturing these records. Uh, and yes, it does put some damper on, on the possibility of sitting and, and thinking about which workers can be put and whatnot. But you could do that ahead of time, right? And so uh, the, the, but the benefit of this having this mobile uh, kind of instant digitization, if you will, is that the bureaucrats were, again, as I said, they were not techno-determinists. They actually understood that this creates one layer, but instead of creating just a digital process, they created a, another process they would where they would randomize which supervisor uh, goes and inspects uh, the work site, right? And so 11 a.m., uh, a random uh, supervisor who is not from the village will get a text uh, saying, hey, you should go to this work site and find out whether the official record matches the uh, number of people who are there. Because at the same day, 11 a.m., now you can go see it, right? And it's randomized. And so, uh, you know, it's not clear who's going to go. And so that creates, a, um, you know, a, a kind of a deterrence effect again. And now um, you could see that, yes, you have you have supervisors going in, but how do you know whether the supervisors are actually going there or not? And so there's another digital solution, right? Another patch, which is basically saying, hey, you know, could you actually have uh, geotag the work sites? And you have the smartphones now with location enabled, and so you can compare the difference between where the uh, whether whether the supervisors are actually even showing up at the work site, uh, and compare that with the digitized uh, re you know record of where the land work work is happening, right? And so you can compare the difference uh, between between these these uh, you know between the uh, what the official record says and and what the um, you know what the supervisor is saying. Well, as you can imagine, this this is a constant thing, right? So the supervisors at at some points complained that, um, you know, it's not that we're not not going. There is errors in the actual uh, digitization of land records of of where the work sites were, and so as you can as you can see that this constant kind of uh, in a paper I wrote cat and mouse game. Um, have to happen. So the the lesson learned is not so much that, I mean, I guess it depends on how, how I mean, my interpretation was it's not so much uh, a kind of a uh, simple fix that you can kind of throw some technology at it and it's, as you said, unstable. It's unstable uh, and people are very, like, always asking me, is this working or not? And I've always been like cagey but answering that directly, not because 
I don't want to answer that question. It really depends on what effort that people are putting in and when you stop asking me that question, meaning when you ask me that question, right? If you ask me or ask us, if you look at this phenomenon at a particular state, you will say that, oh, depending upon which, who's managing, who's able to kind of win that battle, you'll say, well, that party who's won, is, it's a quote-unquote success. But I'm arguing this is an iterative process. Uh, it's a constant change. If you really want to use technology, it can fix certain problems, but you can't expect uh, you know, uh, the other side waiting around for your brilliant in intervention and then thinking that you know, you're going to cleverly design. So the, it's, not, it's also not anti-tech. Because I'm not trying to say that, I mean, there is deterrence, there is benefits, there is less corruption in, in, some, in some cases because of this constant kind of oversight. I mean, we're just talking about tech now, right? This is true for other, other things. But it's, it's not so much to kind of, it's to it raise questions about certain kind of simplistic randomized control trials, for example, which wants to kind of quantify a certain intervention and then sees whether it's working or not, whether transparency works or not, giving citizen scorecard. So I'm, so I think the danger in kind of having a, a fixed, uh, a snapshot view of an intervention and then concluding whether it works or not, I'm basically raising questions of that kind of model. It is not so much you can't intervene, it is just that you don't just have it's not about coming up with a clever design it is like if you really want to have transparency to work put the effort in the transparency and and wait and go all the way and it's an anticipate resistance and it's not going to be a stable it's not a, the search for a stable state is, is is i think a fiction this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, and, you know, like thinking about the infrastructures of accountability, you also write about the role of public hearings and social audits. In fact, I thought those chapters were like so great. And um, and it was so inspiring to read how a social movement, uh, you know, enabled or uh, inspired a model to audit a public works program and how truly social a system this heralded in holding the state accountable for its actions. Uh, your observations and the case of Anantapur show how the field of cooperation between different stakeholders from actors within the state to NGOs, to the NREGA workers, to marginalized citizens attending audits. It's actually a continuous process of disagreements, disappointments, and adjustments. I would love for you to speak about how the public hearing model sort of transitioned into a more regularized system of what you call participatory bureaucratic audit institution, and what kinds of considerations aided this transition? Yeah, so I, I would just... Um, put a footnote to that question by saying it's not, uh, you know, there are there is some steady state, but the point that I was trying to make in that um, comparison is that the nature of the institution was constantly patched, and when it stops getting patched, it's going to end. It's going that's going to lead to a, uh, you know, decay of that institution, right? So, so, but there is definitely a big shift, as you point out. Initially, it was uh, inspired by. Uh, the Rajasthan experiment for for people who are not familiar with it. This is the uh, 
MKSS, the Mazur Kisan Shakti Shangatan uh, group that was in some sense um, uh, were, you know, pioneering the kind of modern form of Jansen Wai's of public hearings, which led to passing the the other right, the right to information. So NREGA uh, had through rights. I mean, this program had the right to work and the right to information. And so it, that's one of the reasons why I studied this, because it had like in one case had both work and um, the right to information, which right to information essentially means in this in this case where it allows for ordinary citizens to open up formally closed government records, which is thanks to the Official Secrecy Act, that you can't go and ask for a master role that is pub, you know, that it should be open, but it's not. Um, and so the first, for the first time in 2005, the law was passed and, and NREG was the first instantiation at a large scale of that law being enacted in practice, right? And so, uh, and, and, and the, the social audit process, um, uh, uh, the institution uh, of how you should do the social audit was left to the state government, right? And so there was a kind of a model or a, or a inspiration, which was the the social movements doing these kind of, um, you know, gorilla audits or, or, or audits at, at different pockets, if you will, to kind of raise awareness. And the outcome of that kind of struggle uh, was obviously material benefits for the people who are involved in those in districts and stuff, but also the larger result outcome of passing the legislation, right? But how, then what do you do uh, with it? And so the there was no uh, immediate model. And Andhra, because of a certain kind of, I mean, I described that in the chapter of how the political configurations allowed for a certain kind of um, bureaucrats who were, uh, you know, inspired in some sense by MKSS and went to, and, you know, there's many other actors uh, were involved, uh, Action Aid for one, uh, and they wanted to kind of create an institution uh, or create a process. And so they, I mean, I described the, the, the process of how the, you know, how would you set up an institution which would do this on a daily basis? And and so they experimented with initially with having the Anantapur audit you mentioned, which was a rep copy of the MKSS style audit, but at a at a at a massive scale, uh, covering the entire district. Um, this was because they had a pilot audit of a food for work program and they were successful. And they said, okay, you know, this is in Rega, we've governed this, this we've, we've, you know, we have all these, you know, um, you know digital stuff that's happening. And, and, and so we will not find much corruption and, and in this program. And so they were a little bit more sure. And so they created this massive um, uh, audit uh, and Anantapur was the place where, uh, you know, in some sense, uh, in Rega was launched. And, and so, you know, it was a, you know, the district uh, where uh, the big social audit was done, uh, and they, I mean, a lot of media was involved, and and so the real and and the meeting uh, was, uh, you know, led to um, a lot of resistance because they found a lot of discrepancies and a lot of corruption in the implementation of the program, and uh, you know, for a year or so, uh, one of the fallouts of that was that program. The audit was shut down in the district. You couldn't do it because it was such reach, such scale, uh, and they wanted to kind of figure out how would you do this in audits in the rest of the rest of the state. And um, and I describe, as you put it, struggles um, 
between the kind of uh, you know, social audit um, unit, um, the initial kind of uh, stakeholders, if you will, uh, of people, some from the MKSS, uh, a former activist, uh, and you know the initial kind of volunteers and initial groups of people who were part of the unit, uh, were thinking about, should you give this to a NGO to do the audit? Should it be part of a, a state a missionary uh, and through elaborate kind of, uh, I wouldn't say deliberation because I think there's a lot of, I mean, I describe how that process was fraught um, and uh, and there was different views on what would it mean for a social audit to be run by the state. And so the, uh, the ultimate solution was to kind of create a, a, a independent audit unit funded by the state, uh, but uh, so embedded in it, but independent uh, Lee Run uh, and the MKSS activist Samia Kidambi, who still now uh, is part of the Telangana unit, was chosen as a director and um, you know created this kind of institutional uh, you know uh, a f- a forum uh, where you know you have uh, you know you have an audit unit part of the state, uh, but uh, funded by the state, but it but it. It is independent from the bureaucracy because, you know, Samia, for example, is not a uh, an IAS officer, for example. Right? It's kind of forms from the society, from the outside, from the civil society, uh, and with autonom- autonomy to kind of hire people who, uh, to this institution from NGOs and and uh, uh, you know and, and sons and daughters of Endrega workers. And so I can I can discuss that if you want to how that's set up. But but the, the so it's a bit, so long so it's participatory bureaucracy because it is in some sense um, it is a bureaucracy first meaning it, they have they, they have documents they you know uh, they they uh, they part of they funded by the state and you know you have to do audits every six months and uh, and and the rules that govern it and and uh, and whatnot right and they have to achieve all scales now they can't leave one village and and so in that sense it's a very uh, um, funded bureaucratic process of running these audits, uh, but it's participatory to the extent, and that's again the, and if you read this, it's I, I'm, it, it's a struggle of how much participation, who is participating, how much, how workers are participating, and, that, and, and where do you, how do you conduct these meetings, where do you conduct it, uh, and the back and forth. Uh, so it is, it is not a stable uh, configuration, um, if you will. Yeah, and uh, to really get at this question of participation and what creates a social architecture that makes it truly possible for marginalized people to read and understand the state, you compare three types of public meetings in Andhra Pradesh, the Gram Sabha, the Rachabanda meeting, and an experimental audit meeting. So how were these three meetings different and what did the experimental audit meeting do that the others did not? Yeah, so... um... The, I mean, again, one of the things I should mention uh, about the Andhra style of audits uh, is that, um, you know, we talk about last mile, uh, local power system and, and, and ability to deal with it. And there's some precedence to it, right, in Andhra, where the, there's a history of kind of bypassing the, the local, you know, um, village uh, assembly 
uh, and electing, you know, they didn't, when I was there, they didn't have Sarpanch elections for a while. And, and so this whole Gram Sabha was something that was, um, you know, was never taken seriously for many reasons. And I describe, uh, it, you know, it's actually started from N.T. Ram Rao in some sense of how you know, the whole idea of Mandal, which was a kind of a sub-block was created not so much for you know mandal is like half a block so you can see it as a maybe oh they are are they close to the people well actually there's a political reason for why the mandal was created um because the you know the congress were you know the indian Amra felt that the congress were running the uh you know um uh, a block so he wanted to have a new power structure so created a completely new set of units uh, and so uh, i'm saying there's a history of this kind of meddling with uh, these democratic structures that predates this program. But so the idea of Gram Sabha is one meeting where, you know, it's nice constituted uh, and it's supposedly this meeting that lets people speak about anything they want. It's you're supposed to have it so many times. And, and uh, in Andhra, uh, compared to other pa- parts uh, of of the of the country, um, you know, the, it's not was not taken seriously by the bureau- bureaucrats and the political uh, uh, elites at the top. And so the Gram Sabhas I describe as really a kind of a uh, a paper uh, participation. Meaning, you you know, I you know did a survey uh, in in fifty uh, villages to kind of try and get a sense for um, you know who comes to these meetings and and what speaks out, what who speaks and who speaks and and what happens and it it felt i mean at least the time that i was there um that these meetings were really not implemented in any serious way and so that that was this one meeting and then the the rachabanda is a is a the other extreme in some sense it's a it's a very politicized uh you know it's a meeting uh janmabhumi was again a precursor to this where you have uh if you were a cynic you can see this as uh, uh you know and one of them actually told me this, which is you have work that needs to be done, done in a pub in a, in one day where you have all the line departments of the bureaucrats are lined up in some sense are there in one place, and all the the political party supports it uh, and a demands in some sense kind of having all the bureaucrats to show up and they all show up. It's massively attended. The opposite of the Gram Sabha is very politicized in the sense that. Um, there's a big like kind of show and uh, and uh, and you know and, and the and the politicians come and take credit for all the things they have done and uh, and you you can sign you know you can submit the things that are broken and have all these bureaucrats sitting standing and and having booths and you can submit your petitions and have your grievances addressed right and so in that these meetings are widely attended. Uh, because it's and from not just from the party in you know not just if you didn't vote for that person or so actually everybody attends uh so this is a case where it's completely politicized if the political party really wants to do it you can actually have these uh processes um you know really like the political society in some sense kind of can be galvanized in a way that uh they don't do they don't doesn't happen all the time right and so the 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 social audit meeting, uh, oh, I'll get to the social audit meeting. One of the, uh, the experimental audit meeting was in some sense like, you know, I I mean, I was a participant observer. And so, you know, the, the, the so this, the participant in the, in the, was more um, strengthened in this, in this, in this meeting. So meaning, you know, we were, I mean, I was part of a group. I was, you know, that phase, I was kind of hanging out with the social auditors and, and this we wanted to kind of try and deviate from the 
the social audit process, right? In, in the sense, which is only, um, and I'll, and you will, after this meeting, you'll understand why that process was followed. Because uh, here we wanted to kind of veer off the script in some sense where, you know, we wanted to kind of try and maximize the, the participation, if you will, on the village, in the village. And so, what what would you do if you if you wanted to maximize you want to try and maximize attendance to these things and one easy way was to kind of try and talk to various different factions to various different groups very different political parties you know ambedkar union and whatnot and try and so we basically took the same social audit which is about uh, i should say for people who have not read the book the three different stages of the social audit process one important stage is the household survey where they would go door to door uh, and essentially ask a worker did you work on enrega were you paid and how much was it how much did you get paid and a simple difference between those two and and they would also do an inspection of the field site and so they would know get a sense for how much work was done and um and whatnot and so uh so the, so the the idea of um conducting a local public meeting at the village level is to try and um, build support and gather evidence uh, to what actually happened in the field, right? So this is not just about digitization and technology from the top, but it's also a process where you have uh, ability to kind of really understand what is going on in the field. And so you ca it's not just at the household survey because one of the worries was if you just do an audit process where you go on door to door, the question is it could be captured. So the idea was if you actually have an open public hearing like the Johnson Y I started off in the, in the book, you actually have meeting where you could, uh, many people are present and so you can discuss openly, not just an individual level, but at the village level, the total expenses that are spent, this is the amount of money that was uh, spent on this village, how many works are open, how many people are employed and, and very more aggregate space and allows for people to kind of try and like deliberate right there's an imagination of a kind of an Habermas in public square in some sense right um but in the reality was you know you you have this gram sabas which is kind of very sterile and you have this rachabanda on the other end um you know when we try to kind of experiment this audit uh or this this audit where we talk to a bunch of people uh who are politicians and whatnot the and we made sure workers would show up by delaying the meeting, have, have it at a particular time uh, in a particular space, and uh, and so that many people can attend. Attend, and you know, I, I think the the uh, you know, um, as you as you read the book, the meeting was really too much politics. It became like uncontrollable uh, participation in some sense, where the auditors from the outside had no wherewithal compared to like a social movement would who much who do much much more. They would be there for months. They would figure out who the connections, political connections, and they had a lot more access to power. They would mobilize police. They would mobilize media, and we've done in a much, much more. Uh, and that's why they do it very, very rarely, right? Uh, here you have social auditors who are from the outside, uh, from the NGOs, part of the unit, and they hire local uh, sons and daughters of NRG workers to be part of these oh, social audit very different kind of power configuration and to kind of go with that and trying to imp, you know be very political with the big p by trying by raising questions uh, uh talking to the opposing political party became completely unmanageable uh and so the social audit meeting does not do that right so it becomes a more bureaucratic enterprise where and very politically bureaucratic meaning it's not um so they're interested in 
I mean, I'm, I'm interested to see what your take on it and others take on it. But it's, it, you know, so they try and like in some sense, if it's too much resistance, they would not read up, read out the findings because they're worried about, yes, it's an open meeting, but if it's too open, uh, then if the only the local elites show up, they are there to kind of find out who, who testified against them, right? And so the game, if you will, of this social orders who are actually um, largely, I would say, very sympathetic towards open deliberative process and reality would deal with this politics of, of, of local you know, power class and caste uh, power um, and I'm sure there's gender power, which I, you know, as I, as I point out at some point, you know, I didn't analytically examine, but um, that, you know, so, so the ability for these auditors to, to counter that kind of power was not there, right? So they would retreat by, you know, following various techniques to kind of try and avoid it or deal with it. Uh, and there is, again, every strategy had to be patched because there will be counter reaction. They would, the local elites would demand the audits. The Gram Sabha was actually demanded uh, by the local elites to say, not just in Andhra and Rajasthan too, saying, well, it should be done at the local level by us. Who are you coming from the outside? And we should read, we should know what's going on in the field uh, in, in your audit. And, and so, Anyways, I'll stop there to kind of say that the, it's it's as you said it's a very you know it's a very contested process, um, and and uh, so the, the the chapter was uh, was trying to kind of set the stage for the kind of everyday audit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and just to recap, like as I understand it, there are three stages to a social audit process. In the first stage, there is a household survey wherein workers see and verify their documents that disclose how many days they work under Andrega where they have worked, how much they were paid. In the second stage, there is an open village meeting where people, uh, where uh, the records are read out loud and workers can identify discrepancies. And in the third, there is a mandal level meeting where these discrepancies are resolved and workers are compensated and poor people responsible for the, and the people responsible for the discrepancies, sorry, are penalized. You argue that these kinds of social audits create the possibility of reshaping relations between state and society with a more equitable distribution of power, right? And much of that redistribution of power is best made sense of uh, through the metaphor of rewriting state records. So what does rewriting the state entail? And what are the possibilities it opens up for marginalized citizens? Yeah, again, this is, you know, just to back off, right? So this is, um, you know, responding to kind of scholarship, which talks about seeing the state or seeing like a state and, uh, you know, uh, both Scott's and Corbett's work and Stuart Corbett's work uh, uh, and um, as well as, um, you know, Matthew Hull's work on, you know, the state may and, uh, you know, other anthropologists like Nanika Mathur and others uh, talk about uh, and even Akhil Gupta's red tape, the idea of like, what is a state making? You know, state is made by records. And, and so the idea of, um, you know, taking the kind of Scottian and, and, and vision to kind of ground level, it's records, right? It's not planning documents. It's everyday state records is where action is. And so, so allowing for, you know, citizens to see, I mean, like, you know, Stuart Corp just kind of said at some point that development programs are the only time that the poor actually see the state, right? In some sense. And so, and if you take it one one level further, seeing those records, right, is a big deal because it allows for contestation at, at some level, right? Um, well, the social audit process. I was trying to make a theoretical point, and I would, you know, empirically the and as you as I show, you know, the 
the possibility of the realization is is limited right the idea of rewriting meaning it's not so much just seeing the official records so the social audit process is about generating counter testimonies right about changing what the official record is in some sense right so in that sense it's an opportunity for if if the state is made by writing records then if you have a process where ordinary citizens are writing those records or rewriting those records they are in some sense it's a democratic ideal of state making so they are part of they're engaged in the activity of you know being the state right and of course when i say it and when listeners might be like wow that sounds hard and <laughs> very radical in practice and it is right and so that's why you can't have anybody come and write it because then it would be complete chaos right and so they govern the process of how um who who gets to write it and so this whole audit meetings uh, as you described it nicely uh, three different stages at each stage this attempts at rewriting these records right and and it's very it's organized and institutionalized in a certain way and limited also uh, by throttling how that process happens both for you know pragmatic reasons but also very political reasons right so pragmatic in the sense that you know you can't just say you know if you, if you say okay now here's a document go change it well you know again the local elites are going to change change it to the to, the, to the, what they want and so you want to control it but uh, but the political aspect comes in because you don't want the i mean not you don't want they didn't want um, or they could not allow for um you know the social order process the rewriting in in practice uh, uh the radical possibility of it realized because they you know they, they only had so much political will uh, to be able to kind of counter let's say the contractor uh you know the material payments right and so some of the labor side things you could kind of try and rewrite it because the labor was at that time it was much more possible to kind of contest the wages if a worker is not getting paid that that was possible to kind of try and change but if if there was more money being spent on uh, uh you know on the material uh, the possibility of a social audit finding being factored in back into the official records and changing it was contested more right so i so I'm, all i'm saying is empirically there was a little room uh, uh for re the rewriting possibility uh, to happen in practice but i just wanted to introduce this possibility uh of rewriting state records as a democratic process of, of the potential uh, of everyday citizens to be part of of being uh, you know what the state does mm -hmm. yeah thank you that's really really illuminating it's just uh, switching gears for a bit so patching development is based on in-depth ethnographic research and uh, i wanted to know how did you carry out your research and what were the some what were some of the difficulties you faced and which ethnographies were you inspired by? Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I think as, as you're an ethnographer yourself, I, the, you know, the act of writing one, um, you know, where you kind of smooth out a lot of, a lot of, a uh, lot of, uh, uh, I mean, some of it, I mean, I did, uh, you know, it did, you, it, you did, um, I mean, I did speak out um, in, in, but at every stage, uh, there was a struggle uh, to, uh, be part of uh, the 
the field, right? And so, you know, I, you know, I'm not an anthropologist, so so I don't probably have a certain kind of restrictions on 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 how I should conceive of the field. But there was, you know, I had read a lot of these ethnographies, and I, I was kind of imagining a kind of a, a fixed field based 12 month like you know agriculture cycle kind of study where i would be located in one place and and in and you know if there are others who've studied bureaucracies like locating themselves in an office um, and i was you know i just i mean i guess i started off studying the social audit first right and the social audit is a mobile operation meaning they come in and go so i wanted to basically my field initially was the social audit field uh, and and that changed, right? They would come in, and so they followed them for three months, being an auditor, and you know, did all these experimental audits and all the regular audits and whatnot. And so, that was something uh, was not a fixed location. So I traveled with them, um, and 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 it had its challenges, right? Because you're not really located in one place, and 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 but it had opportunities to kind of discover new possibilities in some sense, kind of following the document, if you will, trail. Um, and this idea of rewriting and stuff, all that comes in because it's you can see how these documents change hands and whatnot. Then the second phase of of, of fieldwork uh, was looking at the the interplay within the bureaucracy uh, and through technology and 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 all these meetings and and whatnot, right? Of waiting to kind of control between the state. And so that uh, phase was you're spending a lot of time in Hyderabad, spending a lot of time in all these meetings, and uh, and that happened in different parts. Um, of of the state, uh, and and uh, you know I I feel like I, I, maybe this is you know somebody will come and tell me write a different history and and find something different, but you know I I thought that I could not have picked up uh, uh, you know uh, this kind of digital um, interventions that happened by not spending time across the country having like going to agriculture union meetings and going to like you know spending time with the field assistants spending time with the upper level bureaucrats and attending video conferences and whatnot so that phase was uh, you know really between um, spending a lot of time like uh, you know understanding the bureaucracy itself right uh, and the layers within the state so to speak and then the third phase was you know i was dissatisfied with just like just the bureaucratic place. I really wanted to kind of understand society and its configurations because I didn't want to kind of, you know, um, you know, basically. I mean, I knew enough to know that this, you know, this, is, you know, it's, you know, it's a very divided society. So I wanted to kind of figure out how do I study these things. And I, in fact, the book only had one case, one particular context. But in, you know, I had written a separate article comparing. So I spent some time, three months actually, in an Adivasi village, and uh, and separately I spent time in a Dalit habitation in a large agricultural village to kind of try and understand how, you know, local uh, configurations will differ. And so that became a more a classic, like locating uh, the locating myself in one place, and then like get the meetings come through, and 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 then I also, um, uh, you know, I I say worked under courts, you know, because I I really. Um, it was very hard to do enrega labor, and so one of the things I tried to do was trying to kind of live with the laborers, and uh, and it was you know I, it was challenging, also uh, liberating in in many ways uh, to be with them. And I don't want to romanticize uh, you know how tribal uh, Adivasi life is, but it was very distinctly different from like the rest of society in many ways, uh, in any gender relations and whatnot. So so the third phase was kind of more classic 
locating one place, um, you know, look being part of their work culture, part of you know, going to the local police station and hanging out, uh, and, uh, and 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 so that was uh, uh, you know the third phase, if you will. Of, of doing work so I kind of and then plus I did spend some time like the assembly archives and whatnot but uh, so that's the kind of method in some sense because at Enrega there's multiple Enregas right so I think Jeff Fitz so nicely put it like you know there's an Enrega that's legislation there's an Enrega that the bureaucracy sees it and there's an Enrega in practice so I want to capture all three uh, and maybe imperfectly so because one you know there's only so much time and I so that was the kind of um, approach that I took. But I, you know, in terms of inspiration, I mean, I, I, I think I mentioned a lot of these uh, books already. Uh, the Will to Improve was something that was very uh, inspirational um, and very frustrating <laughs> to read because, you know, in some, and and and, uh, and, and Nayana Kamato's, uh, uh, you know, uh, book uh, uh, and, and, and uh, yeah, and, and, and Ferguson's and, and, and not, not just ethnographies, I mean, other work, Jonathan Fox's, you know, work and on transparency and um, and so uh, and plus a lot of tech uh, based uh, you know papers and interventions that people have and even uh, you know uh, some econ papers on on RCTs and uh, and I responded to and benefited from um, so it was more eclectic uh, kind of not one um, located field study mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, so what are you working on now and what can we hope to read by you in the future? Um, so I, I'm working on um, a, a few things. One, uh, were, again, it, it's uh, one was uh, a project that is kind of stalled because of COVID. Uh, we did uh, been spending a couple of years actually trying to kind of um, very different register of, uh, of work, which is to kind of try and document uh, the informal settlements in Delhi uh, and essentially coming up with an index of sorts of who gets what from the state and kind of comparing the nine different types of settlements and uh, and uh, a very, um, you know, I would say a laborious task. Uh, this is a collaborative work with a bunch of people uh, and that's something that, uh, and we want to kind of install because we want to try and like generate maps that can be understood by local um, uh, people who are living in these settlements and try and like there was a slightly activistic project there and that kind of got st- st- stopped uh, in because of COVID. But um, so that's one. And then um, the work that I'm uh, so I, I've been I wrote a couple of papers with others on um, you know, since I'm stuck here uh, on AI and how it uh, affects uh, marginalized citizens broadly defined. Uh, uh, and, and so that, so we wrote a couple of papers on one looking at, um, you know, how it affects caste and how it uh, impacts work relations um, on in, in terms of how the imaginations of, you know, what people build for, uh, in the name of AI surveillance machines and 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 how, you know we make the argument inherited discrimination uh, from the institutions that exist and so it's not surprising that these AI imaginations kind of reflect that right so it's a very uh, and then uh, you know another paper which is on you know studying up in some sense of talking to a bunch of you know I guess seventy or um, uh, there's a paper that Nitya uh, Sambasivan led and I was part of it which uh, looking at uh, you know uh, how AI designers imagine, um, uh, you know, AI for a good project. How do they kind of work with um, 
areas where data doesn't exist. And so they work with a bunch of NGOs and whatnot, how they treat expertise or local expertise. Uh, and we make this argument, they're de-skilling uh, these local experts because they see them as data workers uh, as opposed to local experts. And they're only interested in like what data they can get. And, and and the data, what they want is desired by them. They were not experts. So so that reduce, so we basically argue it's a kind of a, nobody wins um, and the uh, and so a bunch of work on AI and 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 is largely kind of a critical look at AI uh, and I'm also looking at like with all the randomized control trial critique and I and I uh, you know I a friend of mine who's um, uh, you know who's a development economist actually in, in uh, working in Bihar been working in Bihar so I'm kind of thinking ways to kind of get this idea of patching into that process and seeing and we just early stages of looking looking at how would you uh, what would it mean to uh, think about patching and uh, in, in a and and would it make sense to kind of try and um, evaluate an impact uh, of of a system where you are more um, open to the idea of patching as a possibility rather than coming up with one kind of fix. So uh, that's also happening. Wow, thank you. These All these projects sound really exciting and I'm looking forward to reading more of your work. Uh, thank you so much for taking time out and talking with me about patching development. Again, I really enjoyed uh, how clearly argued and well-written it was and it's got so many insightful arguments around uh, state-society relations in contemporary India and I highly recommend it to everybody listening. And thank you, Rajesh, for taking time out to do this. I really appreciate it. No, I think thank you to you too. I mean, as I was telling earlier, it's like the labor of love and I, I feel like this is a lot of work and I, I hope you, uh, you know, you not just get, uh, re, uh, you know, benefit intrinsic, but hopefully, you know, the czars in your department would not give credit <laughs> to what you're doing. This is, this is amazing work. Thank you. Oh, I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks.